Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning. Happy Father's Day uh, to all of our uh, fathers uh, out there. Uh, listen, we just want to say uh, one of the things that we love about being a community of faith is days like today. Uh, we know that much like Mother's Day, uh, Father's Day can be a mixture of joy and sorrow, uh, which is why we try to do things like everybody gets donuts, everybody gets coffee, uh, because we believe as a church we're called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, and so this isn't a day that we want to shy away from or, or a day that we just want to talk about all good things, uh, but we want to highlight the fact that we're a community of faith uh, that loves each other, uh, supports each other, rejoices around good things like good dads, and walks with each other in hard times like maybe the loss of a father. All right? Good. You guys okay today? Uh, all right. It's also uh, Juneteenth, uh, and so I want to make sure that we point that out, uh, that today is a day that uh, we celebrate uh, the freedom uh, of a people in our country who were for far too long uh, oppressed and uh, not treated as image bearers. And so you can do some more research on Juneteenth uh, if you want to later. We got some new chairs. Which means you and I are going to have to battle two temptations today. Your temptation is going to be to fall asleep. I'm going to do my best to try to help you with that, all right? Maybe a little too comfortable, especially compared to the ones that we had before. Uh, the temptation I'm going to have to uh, battle, though, is I know you're comfortable. So it feels like, man, I could go an extra 10, 15, 20 minutes. You're going to be okay, right? But no, no. Was that, was that one of my kids? Yeah, yeah. It's my daughter's like, no. Yeah. It's a longer nap. All right, well, we're starting a new series today. Uh, called The Scripture, A Guide to Understanding the Bible. We're going to spend six weeks unpacking together what the Bible is, uh, how we read it and interact with it. Uh, this, uh, I'm leaning pretty heavily on a couple of resources. Uh, we're going to recommend some a couple, a couple different times. The first one that I want to recommend to you is this uh, book, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. Uh, and so if you have some doubts about the way the Bible has come together, what we have in our hands, it is a great small book that's a good resource for you to get started about the Bible. If you've got some friends who got some questions about the Bible, uh, I'd recommend Why Trust the Bible uh, by Greg Gilbert is a good resource for you. The idea for this series started in a Home Depot parking lot. Uh, so early on in the pandemic, uh, my D group, which is John Zila and Bo Mason, uh, we didn't like the fact that we couldn't get together uh, for our D group early on during the lockdown stages. And so uh, I think actually this was Jen Zila's idea. We just stole it from them. Uh, and so every Tuesday morning, we would each individually drive through Starbucks, get our coffee, pull into the Home Depot parking lot in the back, get our champ camping chairs out of our cars, sit six feet apart in the back. I'm sure people thought we were insane. Like, what are those people doing in the Home Depot parking lot? Drink our coffee and just chop it up like we normally would. In the course of that conversation, uh, I said, man, I want to do something to equip people for spiritual formations, talk about the scripture. I need to do something. And, uh, and John really encouraged me to do it. That became like a short video series that we did on YouTube, some interviews that maybe some of you guys saw. Uh, and then the idea for this series has been in the back of my mind ever since then. I, I think it's important for us to talk about 
mainly because if you've ever read through the Bible, you've probably come to one conclusion fairly quickly. The Bible's crazy. There's a lot of crazy things on it. Page one, all creation, everything that was made, was made in six days by God's word. He just spoke it and it happened. Page three, there's a talking snake. Page six, something weird happens between the daughters of men and the sons of God. I don't know what that means. I'm fairly certain I don't want to know what that means. Page seven, a guy leads animals into an ark, Dr. Doolittle style. As you read and interact with the Bible, you don't get very far into it and you're like, this is something different than what I experience in my everyday life. For some of you, your first journey into reading the Bible, you decided, hey, I'm just gonna do it like the way it seems to be laid out. I'm just gonna start at the beginning and after week one, you're looking around thinking to yourself like, wait, this is what I believe? This is what my friends believe? And I didn't even mention talking donkeys, Accounts of genocide, slavery, women having sex with their father-in-laws, and a virgin having a baby. There's a lot that happens in the course of Scripture. And I think it could cause us to struggle with how we're supposed to understand it, how to get handles on it, what we're supposed to do with it at times. I think it's especially hard on a few groups of people. One, I think it's hard for people who grew up in churches who consistently said that the Bible was God's word, but they never, ever explained what that meant. And so they glossed over hard stories, maybe with pithy sayings, just like, hey, you just gotta have faith. Or God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Perhaps they just completely ignored hard sections. And what happens for many of us who grew up in that sort of setting is when you come to hard topics, what you believe starts to unravel because you don't have the handles. How do, I, how do I interpret this? How do I understand this? Nobody ever taught me that this was here. For some of us, maybe we're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity. For new Christian, you got into this whole thing because you heard about Jesus. You were told about his grace and his mercy and compassion. You were drawn to his moral teaching. You were overwhelmed by his unconditional love that was displayed for you on the cross, compelled by his resurrection from the dead. There's something about the story of Jesus that drew you in. And then you read stories of incredible violence. Or you read accounts of very strange laws that don't seem to make much sense in our modern world. And you think, what, what do I do with this? Perhaps you started exploring Christianity. You have a friend who's a Christian who's fantastic. You're not sure you've ever met anyone quite like them. And so you're curious and exploring their faith. And then you read about snakes and the talk and worldwide floods. And you're like, this is what my very reasonable, loving friend seems to believe in. And then some of us, we've been around for a while. We believe it wholeheartedly. We are in. And then we're tempted to just maybe skip over those sections, read them quickly, not think about them very deeply. So what do we do? Now, confession time today, we're taking a very high level view of the scripture. I'm not gonna answer all these questions. 
But if you can hang in here for six weeks, if you miss, it's going to be on Spotify. You're going to be able to watch it the stream later. Uh, then we're going to try to answer all of these questions for you. I think the first one is just this. What is the Bible? <laughs> what is it? What does it claim to be? Now, typically, we'll look at some scripture, and I'll try to build a case, and then give you the big idea at the end. But today, we're going to start with a big idea, and I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit at a time. Here's, what I'm, here's the argument today. The Bible. The Bible is a God-inspired collection of historical narratives, poems, law, prophecies, letters, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic literature that form a single unified story that points to Jesus. So I'm going to submit to you as my thesis statement. This is what the Bible is. The Bible is a God-inspired collection of historical narratives, poems, law, prophecies, letters, wisdom literature, and apocalyptic literature that form a single unified story that points to Jesus. Now, if my thesis statement is true, there's a few things that that means the Bible is not. The Bible is not a reference book, a book where we look up a particular topic that you happen to be interested in at any given moment, and the Bible gives you a brief overview or summary of that topic with some basic facts about it. The Bible isn't designed to be used like a Google search or Wikipedia or back in the day, Encyclopedia Britannica. Nobody remembers that here, but that used to be the way you did research in the fourth grade. You do go to the library, look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and you would get a summary and some basic facts. Today, the way we do that is we Google it, right? You're curious about a topic. How was sausage made? You Google it, and then you regret that. Who's the actor that played Voldemort? You Google it. Then you might Google, how did they make his nose look like that, right? Many of us treat the Bible like that sort of reference book. What does the Bible say about the topic of faith? So we look in the back in the concordance, find a definition. We're looking for maybe some helpful facts about it, and we don't find that's what the Bible does. What does the Bible say about forgiveness? Maybe you have received as a graduation uh, present or at some momentous occasion 101 Bible promises for grads and you think this is the way the Bible is arranged. I could just look up whatever topic I want and I'm going to find the answer. The truth is what happens most often is we look up a topic in the scripture, look at a handful of verses, and then we just pick the one we like the most that agrees with what we already thought. Not what the Bible is designed to be. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't look up things in your concordance. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't Google things about the Bible. It just means when you're doing that, you are not experiencing the Bible as it was intended or designed. Number two, the Bible is not a rule book. When I was in the eighth grade, my Georgia history teacher was Keith Hood. He's still one of my friends to this day, which is strange, but he went, he went to my church. And Mr. Hood had Hood's 40, the Hood 40, which were 40 rules for his classroom, and he had them all memorized. And if you broke one, he would say, that's rule number 12, lunch detention. 
And that's often the way that we think about the Bible, a set of rules that we should abide by, and if we abide by them, then God is going to be happy with us. But that's not the way the Bible's designed either. And I know some of you are like, whoa, 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 buddy. I know about the Ten Commandments. There are plenty of rules in the Bible. I started a reading plan, and I got to Leviticus, and I was like, how many rules are there in this book? And the Bible does contain rules. It contains laws, moral codes of conduct. And often we try to interpret the Bible by just those laws. Maybe you've heard this acronym for Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Or we see the Bible as a collection of enlightened teachings that if we obey, then we're going to be all good. But the Bible isn't primarily a rule book, although it has rules and laws in it. The Bible is primarily a unified story that points to Jesus. And those laws don't stand on their own. They have a place in this unified story. Number three, the Bible is not a science textbook. I'm about to make some of you very angry. But the Bible isn't intended to be a textbook and it wasn't written by modern scientists. It does tell us in a very real way about God's very real world. It tells us that God created all there is and that there is order and design in the universe. Yes and amen, but you are not going to find scientific descriptions or the scientific method in the scripture. And we live in a unique point in time where we want to read everything that has ever been written through our own modern lens, which means the Bible has to conform to our scientific Western brains, and that's not the way it was written. So when you read the Psalms, they're intended to be poetry. It's not as describing the actual movement of the sun and the stars. It's not science. It's poetry. And so sometimes we read the, the Bible like it's a textbook, science textbook. Fourth, and perhaps this is where I make us the most angry, uh, the Bible is not an inspirational quote book. The Bible's not chicken soup for the soul. It's not 365 inspirational quotes. It's not a daily calendar with motivating one-liners. I found my daily calendar from college. It was the far side. I don't know if you guys remember that. Very motivational to start my day with. The Bible isn't designed to be understood in an Instagrammable format. That's not what it is. When we use the inspiration of the scripture, which I'm gonna talk about in just a few minutes, it doesn't mean that the Bible inspires you in some sort of unique way to do something really great or really good or even really religious. The purpose of the scripture isn't to fill you with momentary warm and fuzzies like your favorite Mr. Rogers quote. The point is to point you to Jesus. And so if your only Bible experience is single verses isolated by themselves in order to make you feel good about this present moment and what's going on in your life, you are missing it. So the Bible is not 
a reference book. You're not going to be able to understand it by just looking up one topic at a time. The Bible is not a moral rule book. You're not going to be able to understand it by just looking at what it tells you to do. The Bible's not a science textbook. You're not going to be able to reconcile modern scientific theories simply by using the scripture. And it's not an inspirational quote book. It's not meant to make you feel good every morning like your favorite Instagram follow. So then what is it? Well, we'll go back to our definition. First, the Bible is God-inspired. We use this word inspiration in a very technical way when it comes to the scripture. We will say this, that human authors wrote God's word under the direction or inspiration of God's spirit. Uh, this phrase, inspiration, comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you want to look, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's where that phrase, breathed out, is where we get this word inspiration from. And Paul Writing is actually referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and saying that the entirety of the Old Testament were God's very words spoken out of God's very mouth, inspired or breathed out by God. The idea is that God was the originator, that he spoke in some way to biblical writers. You go, well, how does that happen? Well, Peter gives us a few more details in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So he said, when you read Isaiah, that's not just what Isaiah thinks. It's something much more than what Isaiah thinks. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, God's Spirit showed up. And somehow carried along these men who are writing the scripture. And the final product that we have are God's very words. That God speaks, more specifically that God has spoken to the writers of the scriptures in a very unique way. And they recorded God's words to them. Now here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that the Bible is only God's word, that human authors had a part to play in the construction of the text, that God is inspiring people, that he is using their gifts and talents, their personalities, their literary styles, and the voice of the author is not lost in this process of inspiration. So yes, men spoke from God and for God. And yet somehow in the process did not lose their own personalities, styles, or characters. Let me give you an example. Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. We studied it uh, several years ago, went, went through it here at Mercy Hill. Luke's a doctor, historian, and a Gentile. And so God, by his spirit, inspires Luke to write his gospel account of Jesus' life. And here's what God is using. God is using Luke's gifting as a doctor, his logical mind. God is using his attention to detail as a historian. God is using Luke's own research and Luke's own collection of eyewitness accounts. 
God's using Luke's relationship to Paul to help shape the theology behind the historical account. And so then what you and I receive in the gospel of Luke is absolutely shaped by Luke's unique personality, gifts, experience, and skill set, and at the same time is inspired or breathed out by God, God's very words. And right now, some of you are like, huh? Wait, is Luke and God? Is God and Luke? Is there a percentage breakdown here? How does this work? There are a lot of theories about inspiration. The truth is, mechanically or practically, there's a lot of disagreement. But I do want to point out something that I hope sets you at ease with this sort of tension. That in the incarnation, Jesus is, the Bible teaches us, 100% God and 100% man. Fully God and fully man. And at the incarnation, we go, what? How does that work? There's got to be a percentage breakdown, right? The Bible rejects that. And here in the scripture is the same thing. That the scripture is both God's word and a product of human authorship at the same time. It's not 50-50, it's 100-100. Does that make sense? Like, I'm more confused than when you started. Bro, you are breaking my brain this morning. All right. There's a phrase that we use that I wanna make sure you know. Plenary verbal inspiration. Here at Mercy Hills, what we believe about the scripture. It's very simple. Plenary. The whole thing is God's word. All of it. That's what that means. All of it is God's word. Verbal means the actual words are inspired. So the words we read in the scripture are inspired by God. Does that make sense? So when we talk about it, sometimes that's the way we talk about it. So that's number one. The Bible is God inspired. Number two. The Bible is a unified story. So first, let me handle story. What we mean here is a historically accurate story, a story that corresponds to things that happen in history. So as Greg Gilbert in his book says, Christianity presents itself as history. There are two major parts of this history. The first is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which records the historical events that happen with God calling a people, the people of Abraham, to himself for his purpose, redeeming them as his people, explaining to them how they should live as his people, and then watching that not work out very well. And then the second part of the history is the New Testament, which is the history of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, his life, death, and resurrection, and then the preceding events after his resurrection with the establishment of the church. In fact, 43% of the entirety of the scripture is historical narrative, recounting facts, historical truths. It's telling an actual story that actually happened in actual history. These are not fables or fairy tales, made up stories whose truth lies only in the teaching point, not the events that actually happened. There are plenty of people that believe that about the Bible, but that's not what the Bible says about itself. This is not Stranger Things, part four. 
which I know a lot of you guys don't like. Right? The truth in Stranger Things Part 4 has been that we're not created for isolation. That we're meant to function in community. That when we're separated from other people, it does really messed up things about us. That's the teaching point, and that is very true. But the events of the story are not historically accurate or true. They're crazy. That's not what we mean with the scripture. It purports to be history, a telling of how God actually worked in actual time and actual space. So we said it's a story, but also that it's a unified story. Actually, let me pause right here, because this is where some of you guys are going to have a problem. Because again, you're going to think, oh, this, but it doesn't read like a modern history book. In fact, you might say, I think if I submitted it to those sorts of standards, it would probably fail. And maybe an example that you would give would be the gospel accounts. You go, hey, the gospel accounts aren't in chronological order. They break chronological order. That's not a great way to write history. It seems that it doesn't work. So let me maybe explain this concept if I can. Uh, by fourth grade, I don't know if you guys, anybody ever been to the fourth grade? Good, congratulations. Um, 17% of our church completed the fourth grade. So that's good news, I guess. So let's say in the fourth grade, there's two fourth grade math teachers. Teacher A requires all of the, her students to show their work for the exam. Teacher B does not, right? And let's say teacher A uh, has to cover for teacher B. So teacher B's students did the exam. They didn't show their work. Teachers A's students did the exam. They did show their work. But for some reason, teacher B is sick that day, and they got to get grades in, and so teacher A graded teacher B's class's papers. And the cr class performed really well. They got all the answers right, but they didn't show their work. And so teacher A deducted points every single time that they didn't show their work, and the entire class failed even though they got the answer right. What would a classroom of fourth graders say? That's not fair! Now, they might not be able to articulate the argument, but why would it not be fair? The argument would be, hey, the standard we had in mind when we took the test was that we don't have to show our work. But the standard applied when grading the test was that we have to show our work. So we performed poorly, not because we didn't do what was expected of us, but because the standard changed. Now, this is the same mistake that you and I often make with the scripture is we apply what would be correct in historical accounts to, uh, in the modern age to a scripture, to Hebrew writers who have no conception of that sort of standard. They had their own sort of standard. And so they would do it differently. And then our job is to figure out not if it meets our standard, but if they're meeting their own standard. Does that make sense? It would be unfair to say, hey, in 2022, this is not the way we write history, so your history must not be correct. 
Instead, we must say, in the first century, this is the way historical narratives are constructed, and it conforms to those standards perfectly. Now, I don't want to move on too quickly because we do this too. We just don't notice it. We have different genres that can be historically accurate, but also break certain rules of historical accounts, like chronology. In fact, you and I interact with documents that we believe to be completely true on a daily basis that break chronological order, if that's the example of the time. Have you ever read a news article? Never in chronological order, never. Especially because of the way that we read now. What happens? The main idea is front-loaded in the article, and then they unpack what happened later in the article. It's not in chronological order. In fact, if you read an article by someone who's not really good at their craft yet, it is as confusing as heck to read a newspaper article at, at times. You're like, what the heck? Just, what happened? I got to read it again. And so we understand then as well genres that are historically accurate but operate perhaps at times under different rules and in different ways than what we would normally expect. Make sense? Everybody good? All right. The scripture is a story, history, and a meta-narrative. Here's what I mean by a meta-narrative. I mean there is one unifying story that connects the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. That it is, yes, a diverse collection, 66 books, over 40 different human authors, over 2,000 years in two main languages, different genres. There's historical narratives, Genesis, Exodus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's poetry like the Psalms. There's law like the Ten Commandments or Leviticus. There's prophecies like Isaiah or Ezekiel. There are letters like Paul's letters to the Galatians, Colossians, or the Philippians, or Peter's letters to the churches in Asia Minor. There's wisdom literature like the Proverbs and Job. There's apocalyptic literature like sections of Daniel and Revelation. And yet, with all of that diversity, this collection has one author, God himself, and one main subject, how God is redeeming the world to himself. There is a thread or a single narrative that binds this entire collection together. It is not a random collection of works, but a collection of works that tell one overarching unified story. So it is a unified story recording God's work in actual history and how that work fits into his purpose in redeeming or rescuing or saving mankind. Number three, what the Bible is. God-inspired, right? You guys with me? Unified story that points to Jesus. It's about Jesus. The ultimate purpose of the entirety of the scripture is to point to Jesus. Where do I get this from? Jesus. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking and talking with some disciples who don't recognize him, and they don't understand anything about his death and, and proposed resurrection, rumored resurrection. They're very confused. 
So in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then, listen, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a shorthand Hebrew way of saying the entirety of the Old Testament. It's taking the way that they would organize the books and saying the whole thing. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So Jesus is like, let me do a quick Bible study for you. We're going to start at the beginning, the books of Moses, Genesis. We're going to go all the way to the end of the prophets. I'm going to show you how this entire thing has been about a coming Messiah, and that coming Messiah or Savior is me. And in the same chapter, Jesus is with a larger company of his disciples Now recognize him as the risen Lord. Verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's a different shorthand way using the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible. All of Moses' writing, all of the Psalms, or sometimes they called this the writings, which would have been the section that began with the Psalms, and all the prophets, which would have been the third section, is about me, the coming Messiah. Verse 45, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Instead of them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Let's be very clear. The way Jesus preached the gospel, the way Jesus taught about himself was from the scriptures. That the way we know who Jesus is is from the scriptures. And Jesus is, I think, simultaneously saying two mind-blowing things. The entirety of the Old Testament where he doesn't appear by name at any point, he's saying, is about him and testifies to his death and his resurrection. And that is the means by which he is showing his disciples who he actually is, proclaiming the gospel to them. And so the Old Testament points out our need for a savior, God's promise to send a savior and what that savior will do. God's people, the law, the prophets, writings, talk about a lot of different topics, but the unifying theme is this need for a Savior. This is the way that we properly understand the Ten Commandments. A code of conduct, what God requires of us, that we fall short of and highlights for us our need to be saved. That's the Old Testament, and the New Testament then proclaims this Savior, that his name is Jesus, that he came to save by his life, death, and resurrection. Old Testament is promise made. New Testament is promise kept. Now, there's going to be more on that in a few weeks about the storyline of the Scriptures and the way these things tie together. I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is the thing that I get the most excited about, all right? You're like, but bro, these chairs aren't that comfy. Let's wrap this thing up. Mike Bullmore says, God's great and eternal purpose of redemption, which is expressed in the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, gives rise to the Bible 
And the Bible serves to accomplish God's purpose in the gospel. Do you hear what he just said? The reason that you and I have the scripture is because God wants to save. The reason that we have Genesis to Revelation is because God wants people to know about his son, Jesus. It's the reason it exists. And then, Mike says, the scripture serves as Jesus used it to accomplish God's purpose in the gospel by showing us precisely who Jesus is, why he came, and what he accomplished. Does that make sense? In other words, the argument is you can't divorce God's redemption through Jesus from the scripture or vice versa, that they need each other. And so your Bible that you hold in your hand or you look at on your phone serves to point you to Jesus. And the reason that you have it is because God wants you to know Jesus. So what does this mean for our everyday lives? A couple quick things. Number one, I think this means that you and I should approach the scripture with a posture of humility. That we come believing that it's God's word to us. That even when we don't understand anything, we're leaning in, hoping for God to speak. And when we don't understand, we see that first and foremost is a fault of our own, not a fault of the scriptures. That we understand that this is a collection of ancient writings. That we have to come humbly before with a willingness to do some of the hard work of understanding our culture and context. That we come not expecting the Bible to conform to every single one of our expectations, but humbly allowing the scriptures to be what it is designed to be and what it claims to be. That we also come in humility, realizing that my interpretation is not inspired. Let me say that again, because I really mean my interpretation is not inspired. Often when I struggle with someone or when I talk to someone who's struggling with the truthfulness of Scripture, part of their story is sitting under the teacher, the teaching of someone who confused their interpretation with inspiration. Meaning, my take is the take that is inspired. And I just want you to know, here at Mercy Hill, that is simply not true. Well, it's not true ever but not applied in that way here at Mercy Hill. That I may often get interpretation wrong. And you may often get interpretation wrong. And that doesn't mean that the scriptures are at fault. And so we come humbly. Secondly, I also, you also come to seek to understand the scriptures as a unified whole. I would encourage you, not that your Instagram verses are not awesome. It's not gonna lead you to understanding. So to come to the scripture, not chopping it up in pieces, but seeing it as a connected whole. This is in fact most of the time where we get things wrong. 
focus on one verse, one chapter, one idea, and allow it to interpret every other thing that we see instead of realizing that it's a unified story about Jesus. It's not a reference book. It's not an inspirational quote book. And you and I need to come to the scripture with this question always, how does this fit in the entire story of redemptive history? Some weird stuff in Exodus, you want to understand it, you just ask that question. How does this fit in the entire story, what God's doing in all of history? And then finally, I read the scripture with an eye to Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. We should ask, how does this passage point me to Jesus? How does this show my need for a savior? How does this make a promise about the Savior? How does it help me understand the identity of Jesus the Savior? What is this passage teaching me about who Jesus is? How is this showing me in the New Testament how he accomplished what he came to accomplish? How is this passage reminding me of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? If you and I read the scripture jumping immediately to what it calls us to do instead of who Jesus is and what he's done, we are often going to miss the point. So maybe we could say these three things. We come with a lens, seeing the scripture humbly. We come with a lens, seeing the scripture as a single story. We come with a lens, seeing the scripture as gospel-centered about Jesus. All right, you guys have been super patient. I love you. Thank you. The seats help, right? Okay. If you came today and you've just missed the whole story of the Bible, uh, you thought it was a rule book and you didn't like many of the rules, so you've rejected it, I would love just today to say it's actually a story about Jesus, the Son of God who came to redeem you, to save you. And that maybe today is a day where you could turn to the scripture with fresh eyes to see it as about Jesus. Or maybe today is a day where you're broken and overwhelmed by the fact that God sent the scripture to you so that you would be saved. (laughs) And you come to faith in Christ. And maybe today if you are a follower of Jesus, today is a day where you switch uh, your mindset a little bit. Start to see the scriptures not primarily about you, but by primarily about God, a God who longs to save, and a God who saved by sending his son, Jesus. And so I'm not saying you cancel your Instagram account, but I hope and pray it creates in you a willingness and a longingness to see the connections and the story more than just Instagrammable lines. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.